as we said and read together, our text is Luke 1, verses 8 through 20. After the sermon, let's sing hymn 12, 1 through 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Luke begins his gospel in an intriguing fashion. He understands that other people have written the gospel about the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. But after listening to the eyewitnesses himself, he says, I too am going to write a gospel. I think that I have to do that. Now, he did that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. What he wrote was true. What he wrote was what God wanted written. But Luke clearly has its own unique style and flavor, emphasis, and even own story to tell. First chapter, right away, grips you with an amazing story, a true story, of course, that you do not read in the other Gospels, not to the same extent. He talks about the birth of two boys whose lives are entwined totally together. Their mothers, Elizabeth and Mary, are relatives. The word in Greek says they have a common ancestor. And so some have concluded they were cousins. And if that's the case, then their boys are second cousins. Elizabeth and Mary were also very good friends. We see that later on in the chapter. They, they clearly loved each other. Their, their lives were in sync with one another. They were both faithful children of God. Elizabeth had a son named John. Mary had a son named Jesus. John is born first. That's critically important because the sole purpose of John's life was to prepare the way of the Lord. To make ready a people prepared for the coming Christ. John says, my job is to introduce you to and make you ready to know Jesus and embrace him as your Lord and as your Savior. In fact, what John does, he's one of the greatest men, prophets of the Lord that ever lived. He was filled with the Spirit from birth. You never heard that about a man before. He was an incredible person. But when Jesus Christ came on the scene and and John said, this is the Lamb of the world, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, then John started to recede. He got out of the picture. He told his own disciples, you go and be the disciples of Jesus Christ. The task of John, he had to come first, a few months earlier, to introduce the world to Jesus Christ and introduce Jesus Christ to the world. And that brings us to the, uh, the background of our text this morning. We read, just before our text, there's a preamble. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well well along in years. Critical detail being introduced to us here. Introduced to the Levitical priesthood. Now we know that at that time there were 24 divisions of priests. Four to nine families in each division. Now besides the three major feast days in the year when it was all hands on deck, all priests had to be there in Jerusalem. For the rest of the year, the, each division, each of the 24 divisions would have to go to Jerusalem 
and serve in the temple for two weeks. So it was not a huge job as far as the temple was concerned. Three special days a year, and for two weeks, every priest had to serve with his division at the temple. Now, priests were a special lot. For instance, a a priest had to marry a virgin. If he didn't, he couldn't be a priest. And if you could marry a virgin who was also the daughter of a priest, that was the best thing imaginable. And indeed, that's what happened. Zechariah married Elizabeth, also from the priestly family, which meant their son John was pure from the line of priests. We also read about Elizabeth and, and, and Zechariah, that they were blameless and upright. These were people of God. They loved the Lord. They walked in His ways. They were exemplary people in Israel. That also helps you to understand the significance of the fact that Elizabeth was barren. She didn't have children. She wasn't going to have children. It just simply wasn't possible, humanly speaking. In the Old Testament, if you didn't have children, that was often regarded as a punishment from God. God was punishing you. If you didn't have children, that suggested you don't have a part in the people of God. You don't have a heritage. What, what do you share in the land and in the coming Christ? But Zechariah and Elizabeth were at peace. They understood that God was not punishing them. This was the hand of God in their lives, and they accepted that fact. They loved the Lord, and they knew that they shared in salvation. That brings us to our text, where the action begins. If we summarize our text in this way, Gabriel Give Zechariah an answer to the prayer of Israel. We'll see three things. The prayer of Israel, the role of John, and the answer of the Lord. So we read in our text, once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now there is a a daily ritual in the temple. Every morning early and every night late, you had the sacrifice of burnt offering. It was outside the temple. That sacrifice of burnt offering was the clearest demonstration in the daily life of Israel that through sacrifice and blood, Their sins were forgiven. But before that morning burnt offering, and after it in the evening, what you had was the offering of incense. That took place inside the temple, the first room called the holy place. The altar was just before the veil. And the incense was burned there, and the beautiful fragrance would go through the veil to God as as a symbol of the prayers of the people. A prayer to God, Lord, we confess our sins, forgive us, and let your face shine upon us. Now, at this particular moment in our text, it was Zechariah's division that was up for the two-week duty in the temple. And it had fallen by lot to Zechariah to offer incense. Now, there's a lot of priests there in that two-week period, a lot of different tasks to be done, so everything had to be divided up. But the burning of incense was special, and you were chosen by lot for that. It happened only once in your lifetime. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the priest Zechariah 
to burn the incense. Never happened before. Never would happen to him again. So there he is in the temple. He's got the incense. The altar is already heated up. He's ready to take that incense and and to put it on the altar. And while he's doing that, the people are outside the temple praying with him. And what are they praying? Well, we know because incense symbolized prayer. Incense was symbolic for the prayer of the people. Lord, hear us, forgive us our sins. So so Zechariah put it on there. It started to smoke. The, The room was filled with fragrance. And he saw it going through that veil, through the curtain, into the most holy place to God himself. And he understood that God smelled it. He smelled the prayers of the people. He looked at the blood that had been shed. And the sins of the people were forgiven. At that moment, Zechariah suddenly saw the angel Gabriel appear at the right side of the altar of, of incense. And we read later on in verse 19 that that angel said, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now, if you know your Bible, you will immediately think of an Old Testament experience of Daniel. In Daniel 9, verses 20 through 22, when when Daniel was offering his evening prayers at the time of sacrifice, We read Daniel writing, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. The parallel between Daniel and Zechariah is crystal clear. Daniel is praying at the time of the evening sacrifice. Gabriel appears to him in, in, in Babylon, where the people were punished for their sins. And then Gabriel says, you know, I come from the Lord, and I announce to you that your time of warfare will end. There will come an end to transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring an everlasting righteousness. Daniel is praying for his own sin and the sin of his people. And Gabriel says, your sins are forgiven. The mercy of God is coming upon you. Zechariah is in exactly the same situation. He's burning the incense, the prayer for the forgiveness of sins. And Gabriel appears. And he says, I am I'm God's representative. I've come to bring you good news. Forgiveness of sins. Now, Zechariah is terrified. You might say, why would you be terrified? This is an angel from God. This is God. God shouldn't scare you, Zechariah. Why are you afraid? But Zechariah was a sinful man. And he was standing in the temple. And he was acutely aware of this fact. There was a veil in front of him. And behind that veil was God on his mercy seat. And nobody went in there. Nobody. High priest once per year, once per year, and only then with great precautions, smoke billowing before him, so he would not see too much of the glory of God. The eyes of sinful man cannot look on the holiness of God. Man does not march up to God as if they are equals, as if man has any right. 
So when this angel steps out in front of the veil, beside the altar of incense, Zechariah was terrified. What right have I as a sinful man to be so close to holy God? But the angel Gabriel tells him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been hurt. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. Now, conventional wisdom says, we know what's going on here. Zachariah and Elizabeth did not have a child. That was a difficult thing. So when the angel says, your prayer is heard, Elizabeth will conceive and give birth to a child, everybody thinks the prayer of Zachariah is a prayer for a child, specifically a prayer for a son. Uh, The obvious reading of our text seems to suggest that. But there is not a chance, brothers and sisters. There is no way that that's the prayer of Zechariah there in the temple. Zechariah's prayer is not for a child. It's not what he's there for. Sure that Zechariah and Elizabeth had had their hard times and their many prayers to receive a child, but they were at peace with the fact that God says you're not going to get one. And although later on when Elizabeth does get pregnant, Zechariah and Elizabeth are overjoyed with this, that's not the thing in Zechariah's mind. We are told this is a holy, upright, blameless man. This is a man of God. He's a priest in the temple offering the incense while all the people are praying outside. When you offer incense as a holy, righteous man, you think of one thing. And that one thing is not your your personal problems, your illness, or the fact you don't have a child. The only thing you're thinking about is, I am a sinner. And if God deals with me as I deserve, I'm done. I'm finished. Zechariah was praying, Lord, just like Daniel, forgive me my sin and forgive the sins of my people. In fact, Zechariah being who he is, a righteous, blameless, upright man, offering the incense in the whole understanding of the history of redemption would have been praying for more than the forgiveness of sins. He would be saying, when, O Lord, is he coming who we've been waiting for? A priest, not like me, but a priest in the order of Melchizedek, a prophet like Moses, a king of the line of David, When is Emmanuel coming? Lord, give us our Redeemer. Give us our Savior. No more burnt offerings. No more incense. No more blood of animals. Give us the Lamb of God. Give us our Emmanuel. The one who will truly pay for our sins. And allow the dawn of a new day. A day of joy in the kingdom of God here on earth. Gabriel says, Zechariah, your prayer is heard. It is the prayer for the forgiveness of sins, the prayer for redemption. And the angel says, as a sign, as a sign, Elizabeth will conceive and give birth to a son. You will call his name John, and he will go in the way before the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the the birth of John, the conception of John, is clearly a miracle. 
And it shows that God is almighty. And God is faithful. And God can do things when, when the life of man is barren and empty and hopeless and dark. God can create life. God can give hope. And he does that in the birth of John. In fact, John's whole life, this man who is filled with the Spirit from birth, his whole life is a sign from God, a miracle that draws people's attention to the fact that Christ is coming very soon. He was there to to make ready a people for the coming of Jesus Christ. The light was about to shine in darkness. Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you good news. You know what good news is. In the Bible, good news is the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm doing right here, says Gabriel. I'm telling you about the coming of Jesus Christ. I'm standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And the real fragrant sacrifice is about to be offered. And God will smell it in his nostrils and say, yes, this is enough to pay for the sins of the people. Later on, Paul would say in Ephesians 5, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, here in our text, there's so much promise and symbolism of the Old Testament coming together pointing directly to the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, you you remember how Luke started his gospel saying, It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, Luke wrote that for Theophilus, but not just for him. He wrote it for the church of all ages, and he wrote it for us today. He writes about a a one-time historical event. But he says that has implications for all of us today. We see Zechariah in our text praying, praying really for the consolation of Israel. But you know what? Aside from a handful of people who were praying with him, Israel did not join him in prayer. Something was rotten in the state of Israel. Faith had disintegrated. The hope of the coming Christ was just folklore and had become meaningless to the people. They were not joining with him in prayer. We see that when our Lord Jesus Christ is born and the wise men come from the east, they come to Jerusalem and say, your king has been born. Where is he supposed to be born? They all told him, Micah 5 says, he's from the line of David, born in Bethlehem. And when the wise men made their way to Bethlehem, they looked back down the road, expecting it to be thronged, with throng, you know, full of people. But nobody came, because nobody cared. Zechariah prayed, Lord, forgive us our sins. But people were not joining with him. And that's something that John the Baptist would have to change. What about us today, brothers and sisters? Why are you here. What are you thinking? What's on your mind right now? Is it that we are all sinners who have absolutely nothing to offer to our God? That our prayer is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Wash me in the blood of Jesus Christ. Make me whole. Change my life. And allow me to live to your praise and glory. Do we see even more than Zechariah, not just an angel standing beside the altar of incense, but our Lord Jesus Christ himself. But now the curtain is torn, and he goes through it like the fragrant offering to the mercy seat of God. And God smells the sacrifice, the blood of his own son, and he says, it is enough to pay for the sins of the people. Gabriel said, I know what you're praying for, Zechariah. And you're going to get it. Does he also know what we're praying for today? Now this message of Gabriel is not finished. He goes on to say about that son that's to be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, whose name is to be John, which means that the Lord is a gracious giver. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. The coming of John would be a joy and a delight, not just to his parents, but to the people and for generations to come. John is a joy and a delight to us today. He's God's gift. Our text says, he will be great in the sight of God. And it goes on to say, he will not drink alcohol and he will be filled with the Spirit from birth. What does that mean? Some have concluded that means he's a Nazarite, like Samson was a Nazarite. But those facts don't really add up. John might have been, but he might not have been a Nazarite. So what does it mean? Probably the two are closely connected. No alcohol, full of the Spirit, from birth. The thing about John is, he is a singular man, in the sense that Everything about him has a very clear, stated purpose. He's going in one line. Nothing complicated about the man. You know who he is, what he has come to do. Everyone who met John saw a man. He lived in the desert. He had this big hair. Dressed in camel's clothing, he ate wild honey and locusts. Not a drop of alcohol touched his lips. He was not, did not belong to some sexual cult. He was not interested in money. He didn't hobnob with the rich and the famous. When you saw John, you saw that there's nothing about this man except that he is full of the Spirit. John would come with a message that would knock people's sandals off. Nobody could say, well, it's because he's drunk or because he's a pervert. Or because he's, he's filled with the love of money. Those things were nothing to him. You knew where you were with John. That was a man with a vision, with a line, burning with the Spirit, whose solitary purpose was to let you know who Jesus is. To repent from your sins and to embrace Him as your Lord and your Savior. You see that explained in verses 16 and 17. Many of the people of Israel will bring back to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready the people prepared for the Lord. Sound familiar to you? Ever heard anything like that before? 
Last line of the Old Testament. Very last line of the Old Testament. Malachi 4 says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So the Old Testament ends by saying, One day a prophet will come just before the appearance of the Christ. That prophet will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah and turn the hearts of fathers and children and all people to each other as they repent from their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Now, you, want, you might wonder why, why this prophet, who's now John, why he wouldn't come in the spirit of power of, let's say, Moses or uh, of David. Why Elijah? You'll know the answer to that question when you think both of Elijah and John and the time in which they lived. Elijah lived in a time in the northern ten tribes of Israel when, in his opinion, as far as he could see, everybody had rejected God and kissed the Baals instead. He lived in a time of unparalleled immorality and idolatry. As far as he could see, this is not even a church anymore. It's all over. Now, in that, in that kind of a situation, you don't need a weak prophet who comes to this people and says, you've been really bad. You know, you're, you're, you're naughty people. You're going to have to change. No, you need a man who's a powerhouse. A man who comes in there is fearless and bold and say, people, repent or you're going to hell. And that's what Elijah was. Powerful, bold, look people in the eye. He, as the Jews would say, he had chutzpah. He looked at the people and he called a spade a spade. He drew no punches. He said, people, if you don't repent, you're going down. You're going to go to hell. You gotta repent. And, and because of his work, there was blessings. John the Baptist came in the same time. He came in a time when the people of Israel were no longer interested in a savior who would die for their sins. They did not need a man who would mildly and calmly say, people, you gotta repent. They needed a man with hair, with camels, camels fur. A wild host, a wild locust, a man with power, you know, to speak the truth, to let nobody get off easy. And boy, did John the Baptist ever do that. One occasion, the leaders of the land came to him. Now you imagine if, let's say, a new professor of our theological seminary would come here and say, I want to talk to the ministers, elders, and deacons in the Edmonton area. We're all gathered together, let's say in your nice new lobby. We're standing there, and the new professor looks at the ministers, the elders, and deacons, and says, you slimy bunch of snakes. Oh, that would be quite something to say. John did it. the, The Sadducees and the Pharisees came to him there in the Jordan, and he looked at them, and he said, you brood of vipers, you poisonous snakes. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't even think to say, we have Abraham as our father. 
I tell you that out of stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. You understand what John is saying? To the ministers, to the leaders of the land, he said, repent or go to hell. Because the time is short. The axe is at the root of the tree. Jesus is coming now, and he's only going to be here for a couple of years, and he's moving on. After Pentecost, he goes out to the whole world. Now is the time to repent before it's too late. That, that means the spirit and the power of Elijah. You needed a man like John to tell the truth as it is, calling people to repentance. And indeed, the ministry of John was very successful, blessed by God. He was filled with the Spirit from the time he was born. And he turned the hearts of the fathers to children. The obedience and disobedience together. That means that people whose relationships were shattered because of sin, through the gospel, through knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they repented and relationships were healed before the face of God. You know what, brothers and sisters, we need something of the style of Elijah and John the Baptist today. You know, we become such a politically correct society and so scared of the spirit of individualism that sometimes you're you're afraid to tell people like it really is. Elders may make home visits. Be careful what you say, elders. You don't want to step on anybody's toes, do you? I love it when in a consistory meeting, elders report and they said, you know, we had to be tough. We had to speak clearly. We had to say this to this couple the way that you're living with irregular worship attendance, not giving your first fruits to the Lord, not praying and reading your Bible together. We call you to repentance because the way you're going, you're shattering any relationship that you have with God and with his church. All of us. You know, the way you talk to people, it's got to be done in love and with respect. But if you have a friend, a friend who's starting to lead a sinful lifestyle, maybe getting into drugs or sexual immorality, you can't pussyfoot around. You can't say to your friend, you know, this is not good. you got to say, my friend, the way you're going is a completely different way than I'm going. If you don't repent, if you don't change, I may not see you in eternity. You continue in this path and rebel against God. You're going in a darkness on a wide road that leads to hell. This is not a new gospel. It's not a new way of doing things. If we think of Moses, when, when he's about to die, and the people are entering the promised land, at the end of Deuteronomy, he says very clearly to Israel, God puts before you life and death. Which shall you choose? What are you going to do? Choose life that you may live. We need to hear a gospel that's bold and clear, calling us to repentance, pointing out sin, so that by the grace of God we do repent. And we do live in the joy of salvation to God's praise and glory. Now, in the last three verses of our text, it becomes clear that Zechariah has some doubts. 
and his doubts may be about whether his old wife can get pregnant, but we've understood that there's a lot more going on here than whether Elizabeth is pregnant or not. For Zechariah, the critical issue is the forgiveness of sins and the coming of the Savior, the Emmanuel, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Gabriel says, your prayer is heard. It's going to happen. In fact, your son is going to prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ. And Zechariah had doubts. How How is it possible? He's praying for Emmanuel. And now he has doubts? Don't be too harsh. Look at the whole ministry of Jesus Christ. Look at his disciples. Look at them standing there at the cross of Golgotha and also Mary herself. And they didn't understand that Jesus was bleeding and dying because he had to. It's God's plan for the redemption of sinners. At that time, there was so much misunderstanding. Don't judge Zachariah too harshly. And yet he doubted and he was punished. Gabriel said, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Again, conventional wisdom suggests that what happened to Zechariah, his silence, was a huge punishment. What a terrible thing happened to Zechariah. Really? Is this that bad for Zechariah? When he came out of the temple, everybody knew he had had a vision from God. His reputation was intact. After the two weeks were over, he went home, he made love to his wife, she got pregnant, and they had a child. Zechariah was on cloud nine. He knew the promise of God. He saw in his own life and in the conception in Elizabeth's womb, the hand of God. You know, a new day was coming. A new day was about to dawn. The silence of Zacharias is not so much about Zachariah himself. It's about the whole people of Israel. For a long time, there had been silence in Israel. And now it was going to last not just nine months, but 30 years longer. It'll be another 30 years before John the Baptist comes onto the scene and starts preaching about the kingdom of heaven is near. Thirty more years of silence, waiting before Israel knew the truth. And then even through the ministry of Jesus Christ, there was so much silence because people didn't understand. And Jesus would sometimes say, don't even tell them who I am. They can't understand it. But after Pentecost, the silence was over. The full truth was made to the, known to the whole wide world. This is Jesus He died for your sins. Believe in him. Today, brothers and sisters, there is no silence. No one stops the mouth of the gospel. It is being shouted from mountaintops. It is being translated in every language. You as congregation hear it twice every week. You hear it. The only way that the gospel is silenced is if you got your fingers stuck in your own ears. Or you cover your heart. Listen. Listen to Gabriel. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to the, to the Word of God, which is resounding through the world. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Mary, came into this world 
to die for your sins and respond to that by saying, my Lord Jesus Christ, you died for me. Thank God. These are my sins. I confess them all. Wash it away in the blood of Jesus and make me whole that I may give my life to the praise and the glory of God in everything that I do. Amen.